Romans chapter 9. Uh, as I shared last week, you remember we, we talked about how Romans can actually be broken up into three different sections, Romans chapters 1 through 8, and it's, it, it, it shows, uh, talks about the depravity of man, it talks about the, the sufficiency that we have in Christ and, and how Christ can, uh, can come in and give us new life, that we're desperately lost without him, and, and uh, it talks about you know, our sinful condition and the, the, that we can actually have a freedom in Christ that when we come to Christ that there can be no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. And he, he culminates it with this crescendo, excuse me, at the end of Romans chapter 8 where he says, man, I, I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's just, he has this big crescendo and then he, he comes in and all of a sudden he kind of hits the brakes and he goes into a parenthetical section and that is that parenthetical section of Romans chapters 9 through uh, Romans chapter 11. So we got three chapters there that we're going to be di- digging into over the next few weeks and as we dig into them, what we're going to see is that Paul is shifting his focus from talking about the world per se, everybody in the world, to every individual that has ever been born upon the face of the earth to he begins to focus on and he'll also relate to but his main emphasis in Romans chapters 9 through 11 is about Israel. It's about the Jews. It's about the Jews. And, and you know, over my last two messages that I had, I had one message that was, that was uh, separated by Kevin's message two weeks ago. But you remember, as we've talked about Paul's passion that he had for his brothers and for his friends and for his family, you know, for his countrymen, for the people that he learned and lived for, And so what we're going to do today, oh, and then the third section would be Romans chapters 12 through 16. Paul basically jumps back into and talks about how we are to live from that point forward. This is who you were. This is who you can be. Uh, Now here about the Jews, here's what we want to talk about. Romans 9 through 11 and then chapters, you know, uh, 12 and on. It goes into and Paul says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you... Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, he, he breaks into this, again, this, this exhortation, this Newt Rockne speech, if you will, for you and I, this win one for the gipper type of a speech for us as Christians to gather up and say, hey man, I'm going to live for Christ. Now I'm going to live for Christ because I understand where I came from, where I was going, and what God saved me from through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he says, now... Chapter 12 comes in, now this is how I'm going to live. But he has this time here in these three chapters, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, that as today I'm going to talk about here, um, most of you guys know that I'm a bivocational pastor. Um, uh, you know, what does that mean? You know, that just means that I work outside of the church to provide for my family financially. I work in the church to provide for my family, you, my extended family, you, spiritually. Now, I don't say this for any other, you know, I don't say, hey, look at this, this is a neat thing. No, I, I, there's a reason behind what I'm saying. Because I know that there are some times, and it just happened to me even just a couple of weeks ago, where I had an individual that came in and was kind of challenging me on some of the theological things that I was saying, some of the biblical, you know, interpretations that I had, and he was kind of challenging me a little bit on some things. And, and, and one of the statements that came out of his mouth, he goes, you're just taking a company line because that's what you're paid to do. And, and he, he was kind of pretty, you know, forthright, you know. And I'm, you know, he was 
kind of beating around the bush. You know? I finally just said, hey, what is your question? What is it that you're asking? I don't know what you're asking. He says, well, this is, you know, you kind of, you take kind of the company line because that's what you're paid to do. And I said, well, first off, just so you know, I don't get paid here at the church. I don't know if you know that. I don't get paid a dime here at the church. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to get paid from the church. Uh, should the church ever grow and provide for me? That would be awesome. I'd love to do it. And there have been times in the, in, you know, since I've been here since 96 that the church was able to do it. But right now that's not the case. What we spend our money on right now is buildings and missions and benevolence and all of the other things that we have here. And that's a cool thing. I'm not bellyaching at that. I'm, I don't do this because I'm paid to do this. I, pay, I do this because I love Jesus. And I want to see you guys grow. I want to grow. I want you to grow. I want us to grow together. I don't want us to be bumps on a log in heaven not knowing what's going on. I want us to understand. I want us to be a smart church. I want us to be an intellectual church. I want us to understand what the Word of God says. Not, not so that we can say, hey, we're, we're smarter than any other church. No, no, no. I want us to say, man, we know Jesus. You know, there's a time in, in, in the book of Acts where it says that, that it's like 17, 18, you know, where it talks about Paul and Silas. It says they understood, you know, they, they looked at Paul and Silas because they had been with Jesus. I want people to see us and when they interact with us, that their response is they have been with Jesus. That's what I want us to be. Kevin, I keep hitting this thing, don't I? You know, Kevin, Kevin said, you got to move that thing away because I kept hitting this stock. And I'm going, come on, what do you, how do you do that with your arms? And here I have done it about four times already. Um, you know, we, we live uh, uh, our life here in this church. The purpose of this church is to make disciples. Pastor Bob Coyce told me a long time ago, uh, he says, Everything you do, put on these figurative glasses, these binoculars, and look through those things and, and ask yourself, does this make disciples? Does this make disciples? That's the focus of a church. That's the focus of us. That's the focus of you. That's the focus of what it is that we want to do here as a church. And so here's the thing. What, why I said this is that I know that I've actually been presented this probably three times over the last year. Where people go, well, you know, what do you get paid? I didn't pay anything. Oh, now all of a sudden, maybe their ears perk up a little bit more. Oh, so you don't do this for any, why do you do it? It's because I love Jesus. Why do you live your life? Well, I guess it's because I love Jesus. Praise the Lord. That's what we do it for, right? If you're serving Christ for money, which I know that there's people out there that are doing it, you know, it, it sickens me. And I just heard of a... Uh, I don't want to judge anybody, but you know, by even saying it, but you know, some well-known money-mongering woman pastor just married the keyboardist for Journey. Yeah, what? Come on, you know? I don't know. Sorry, I judged and I probably shouldn't have. But here's the thing. I know some of those words to those songs, man. That was one of my bands back in high school. And I'm thinking, I don't know how you can be as a pastor and be in there and singing some of those things, you know. Um, it's just not a good thing. But here's the thing. I want to be genuine. That's what we want to be. We want to be genuine. And so here's the thing. When, when, you, when you sit there and go, well, you're just saying these things because you, you, you're the pastor and you, you're getting paid to do... No, 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 no. I'm doing this because I want to see you grow. I want to see you in heaven. It's the reason why we just prayed this way today. 
I don't want to just see you in heaven. I want to see your family members in heaven. I want to see your friends in heaven. I want to see my family members and my friends in heaven, right? I do. Do you? That's what we want to be as a church. That's the heart of what we want to be as a church. But be that as it may, my bivocational, I'm a handyman. You know, I kind of robbed Josh McDowell, you know, uh, of his name of his most famous book that he has out. Well, actually, it's probably, uh, no, it's probably his most famous book. He has two big, big books out there. One's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Any of you guys ever heard of that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict? It's a great book, really good book. He was an atheist. He was writing a thesis, you know, on the, the how God doesn't exist, you know, and that there is no truth in God and what have you. And in his thesis, he got saved because he's going, wow, there's just way too much proof that there is a God. And so all of a sudden, he what he started out to write was not what he ended up writing. He actually wrote a, a book that was an apologetic book talking about the existence of God and the existence of the Son, Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh. And it just blew you know, your mind and what have you. And so that is one of his most famous books. But there's a second book out, and it's called More Than a Carpenter. And basically, it... it takes some of the stuff that's in, that's in uh, evidence that demands a verdict and it kind of puts it down into a very, very easy read and that's the name of my business, more than a carpenter handyman business. You know, I'm a pastor. So what do you do? I'm a handyman. Well, but I'm more than a carpenter. I'm more than a handyman. Maybe I should make it more than a handyman. You know? But I do work. And, and I've always done work with my hands. I, I, I love that. That's something about me. I have this... this I, I, this thing that is ingrained in me that I love to see how things work. Um, sometimes I like to see how things work before they're broken and then I break them. Maybe you're a part of it like that, you know. But, but that doesn't happen often, but it does happen at times. But I learn, you know, what not to do next time. But here's the thing. I don't do that on people's houses now. I don't do that. Say, you know, I, I grew up you know, from, from a, a little tyke you know, to the point where I just could hold a screwdriver in my hand. My dad would have me under airplanes. You know, I, worked, I grew up at an airport, and my dad had an aircraft mechanic shop, and he had it since 1955, and he just gave up the shop just two or three years ago. My dad's still living and thriving you know, and, and doing a good job. You know, he's in his 80s, 83 years old I think is what he is right now and and the thing is is that he's still living and going and he just got an iPhone 6 you know uh, just the other day plus and and he he keeps I don't know can I say this butt dialing me that's probably not a good work but he does that he he facetimes me He said, I didn't mean to call you, and he had it in his back pocket. I don't know if there's a correlation there, you know, FaceTiming and whatever. But here's the thing. He calls me, and we talk, and it's so cool to be able to see my, my dad, you know, and I talk to him like that. But here's the thing. I worked on, an air, on airplanes my whole life. I flew airplanes uh, for quite some time and flew for a company. And here, here's the thing. I learned how to work with my hands and I enjoyed it. I learned how to build things and my dad encouraged me to build things and to figure out how things work. And so that's kind of what gave me the impetus to learn how to build things, you know, uh, how to do everything from airplanes to toilets to, to you know, walls, you know, and, and ceilings and things like that. And so uh, here's what I, what I do with my hands. I like to work with my hands. But the one thing that I, all of that that I, I say is that, and I want to pass it on to you, especially the younger folks like my son, and and he hears it from me a lot. And that is, and I, I have brought him in, and he's learning how to do a lot of this stuff. He's doing pretty good. He's really actually doing a lot, a lot of things that I do, and he does them very well. 
and I, I'm proud of that in him. And it, it didn't start out that well, but as he's grown, he's doing really, really well. And so it's fun to see him grow in that and you know, continue to see him grow and what have you. But here's the thing. What I constantly pump into him is that the prep work is the most important thing that you can do when you do a job. And, and therein lies, if you, do, if, you don't, if you neglect the prep work, your finished product is going to reflect your non-prep work. You know, your prep work is the slowest, most boring, most uh, you know, mundane. You, know, you don't like to do the prep work. You hate it. Say you have a hole in the wall over here, and we've got a hole in the wall, and you go, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just patch it up real quick and throw some spackle in it or something, you know? and then I'm going to paint over it. Well, here's what's going to happen. Everybody's going to see that hole in the wall when they walk in. You think that you filled it. Yes, you filled it, but it looks bad. If you do it correctly, if you go in there and you put a backer board in there and, and something that you can put a hole plug in there and, and attach that hole plug to and then put your proper tape that's on it and then put your mud on it in the right way and, and then put another coat and a two or three coats of mud on there and put it in there and sand it down and make sure that it's nice and then texture the wall in accordance with everything else and kind of flare everything out and then prime it. All of this stuff takes time and it's monotonous and it's laborious but when it's all done and you can't see where that hole was, it's all well worth it. I'm sure that all of us have an area in our house that you go, man, I wish it's painted over but it looks ugly. You know, and here's the thing. The person didn't go to you know, painstaking effort to do the prep work. That's what Paul's doing here in this passage. Paul is doing prep work in this passage to establish a point to the Jews. He sees that there's a problem. And the reason he's going to such extremes is that he wants to get into the lives of these disciples or into the Jews not of the disciples but into the Jews he wants them to see what he sees and if you look in Romans chapter 9 um, and you look at the last uh, two verses now back up into verse 30 just to get context Paul he writes and we're using this kind of for the foundation for the next couple of weeks that we're going to go in. What shall we say then, Paul says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness? Now before we go on into verse 32 and don't cheat, here's the thing. Verse 30 and 31, what Paul has just said is he's talked about the Gentiles that are coming into the faith, which would be the church, right? Right? And then he's talking about the Jews that are trying to find righteousness by the works of the law. And so he shows there's two groups here, the Gentiles coming to faith, you know, coming to faith, and the Jews that are trying to attain faith by their actions or by their works. He says, so here's the thing. Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness like the like the Gentile or like the Jews did, Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness as our forefathers did, the Jews. They pursued what the Bible said. They pursued what the law said and tried to find righteousness in the law. The problem is, is that there were so many laws and traditions added to the word of God that all of a sudden the word of God became no effect. In fact, Jesus actually said that, didn't he? 
He talked to the Pharisees and he says, you teach, you Pharisees, you religious rulers. This is a confrontation that Jesus had with the religious rulers of his day. He says, you Pharisees, you religious rulers, you teach the traditions of man as if they were the oracles of God or the doctrine of God. You teach these things as if God breathed these things and that and much of what you've written in your traditions actually contradict and, and remove the weight of my word, of the word of God. It removes, it, it cuts the strength of the word out. And so he says, so then you go and proselytize with this kind of tradition and what you do is that you make these, these, these ones that, that you evangelize or you proselytize, you make them twice as a son of hell as you yourself are. And so you're actually doing a bad thing by taking the word of God and then adding the traditions of men to it. And let that be just a lesson to all of us. If, if someone comes to your door and knocks on your door and says, listen, you need to read the Bible and you need to read the Watchtower. You need to read the Bible and you need to read Ellen G. White. You need to read the Bible and you need to read... And, and whatever book it is, whatever else they want you to read, here's the thing. Just flee. Just if, if you can't stand up to them and talk to them, just say, hey, you know what? I'd ask for you to leave. I don't believe that I need anything more than the Bible and, and the Holy Spirit. I don't need your book. I don't need your book to tell me what this thing says. That's what Jesus came out against the religious rulers because that's what they were doing. They were making as doctrines of, of God what the traditions of men were. And Jesus says, that just, you're making somebody twice as much a son of hell as you yourself are. And so here's the thing. Paul, he's a guy that, that as we, we look at Paul, we see that Paul is a, really a biblical enigma. And I don't have time to go through this today and I'm going to touch on it next week, I promise. But Paul is this biblical enigma. And what Paul does is that Paul, Paul is, is a guy that can see life from both sides of this fence. The Gentiles or the church, not the Gentiles because he's not a Gentile, but he can see it through the eyes of a church, but he can also see it through a very religious Jew. That's what he was saying there in verse 30 and 31. What shall we say? Gentiles, they didn't pursue righteousness. Have they attained to the righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, they're left out because they were pursuing the law of righteousness and had not attained to the uh, law of righteousness. Why is it, Paul says, that they didn't attain to faith? Because, he says it in verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith, as it were, but by the works of the law. For they stumbled, listen, and this is a big point that I'm going to be digging into next week. And, and this is the, the, the groundwork. This is the, the prep work for what we're going to get into. This is, the, this is doing our hard work before we get into the rest of the, the passage next week. But here's the thing. He says, for the Jews, they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Who is the stumbling stone? The stumbling, yes, that's right, Jesus. The stumbling stone in the Greek is scandalon. That's where we get this word scandalous from. You understand? Here's the thing. It was, Jesus was scandalous to the Jew. 
He was scandalous to the Jew. And I'm going to build this case next week as we get into it. But understand this, and this is where we're going to go with this, and I'll end with this. Paul, he's saying, Christ was a stumbling stone to you Jews. This is his parenthetical. This is his, his groundwork for that parenthetical three-chapter section right here in the book of Romans. He goes, you had the law and you couldn't find righteousness by the law. And when Christ came, he became a stumbling stone to you. You stumbled over that. You know why? Because they stumbled over the fact that God wasn't doing it the way that they thought that God should do it. Jesus Christ is that stumbling stone. When Jesus Christ came on the scene, he was the scandal. This is scandalous, they would say. This is scandalous. God would never become a man and then humble himself to a point of the cross for goodness sakes. We would have recognized him if he came in and said, hey, Caiaphas, you're out of here, dude. I'm the high priest. I'm Christ. I'm the Messiah. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, I am. Poof. Okay. Yeah, Caiaphas, he's sacrificed. He's dead because he kind of came against Christ. But hey, man, we just saw Caiaphas spontaneously combust. You know, Jesus did it. He's taken the, the, you know, the seat, his throne. Anybody else who would come against Jesus, stand down or you'll be just like Caiaphas, you know, or Annas, the high priest, you know, or the father-in-law of Caiaphas, you know. And, and so, so as Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't do, he doesn't show this, this, this puffed out chest bravado that comes in and says, I am in charge now, you know. I worked in a business uh, a, a while back, and, and it was in a, in a business that I really, really enjoyed. And, and the, 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 the boss was a really, really, really good guy. He was a great leader. He was a fun leader. He was a, a, a leader that actually would help you to learn, and, and he, allowed you to, he allowed you to make mistakes. He allowed you to, to, to fall on your face, but then he'd pick you up, and, and he'd help you out and, and what have you. He was a, he's a very smart guy. Very smart guy. And the office loved him, loved him very, very much. And, and then he ended up moving on and going to a different company. And then they brought somebody else in. And when they brought this next guy in, well, they brought another guy in and the other guy that came in, he didn't do a very good job and they got rid of him after about a year. But then they brought another guy in that had been with the company for a while. He came in and I had... I had you know, had talked to the former, my former boss, and he said, yeah, he's a good guy, you know. I talked to the, the rest of the, of, of the business, you know, that I was in. I said, guys, hey, our former boss, who we all love, we miss him terribly. He was a problem solver. He was a, he was a guy that was gracious. He was a guy that really, really helped us out a lot. Here's the thing. Uh, his office loved him. But then he moved on for whatever reasons. It's not important. But here's the thing. He moved on. He didn't want to move on, but he had to move on. Uh, he wasn't fired by any means. He willfully left. He, he, he wanted to go. But here's the thing. They put somebody else in. The guy didn't work. And then they brought this other guy in. And as this other guy came in, he's kind of trying to gain some traction and what have you. And I, I remember talking. Well, I actually opened up my mouth and talked to the whole of the office in a meeting one time, I said, hey, man, our former boss, this, he says, this guy's a good guy, man. Our business is really taking a dive right now. We're having a hard time here in the business. He says, this, guy, this guy's going to be able to help us out. He's going to help us out. He's going to help us get you know, on our feet, and he's going to keep us going, man. I think we need to rally behind this guy because 
After that first boss left, that second guy that came in, everybody kind of got depressed and they kind of started really, really slacking off their work and they just didn't see the use of working there anymore. And the businesses started going way, way down. But then this new guy comes in and I rah-rah this guy up. I'm saying, come on, guys. Let's do this. Let's get behind this guy. Let's build this business back up, you know? And I'm, I'm kind of the rah-rah guy, you know? And everybody's kind of unsure of what's going to happen. And, and, then, and then I'm thinking, okay, now this guy has the floor. He comes in with our CEO, and he comes in, and he comes in. And, and some of the first words out of his mouth, he said, hey, tell me, you know, tell that person I'll give him his 10 bucks, you know, or 20 bucks for saying those kind things about me. And then immediately after he gets done saying that, he goes, well, let me just tell you, we're not doing it his way anymore. We're doing it my way. And I said, you just, you, just, you just cut your head off. You just cut your head off. You just made every single person in this room hate you. Because you just, you took somebody that they love and you cut his head off and said, he is non-existent. He, we're not going to do it his way. We're going to do it my way. And the way we're doing it, and then he starts laying out all these ground rules. You will be here. You'll be doing this. If you're two minutes late to a meeting, we're going to lock the door. You're not going to be in on that meeting. We almost wanted to give the guy a couple six shooters on his belt, you know. Hey, new cowboys in town, you know, new sheriffs in town, you know. And you're just going, you just lost it. You lost it. You, you went about it the wrong way. That's the kind of a guy that the Jews were thinking was going to come in and take over. But Jesus wasn't that guy. And when he didn't come in with the six blade, you know, the six shooters blazing and saying, this is how it's going to be. It's not going to be done like that. It's going to come in. Here's what, the, here's what happened. They didn't like it. And they stumbled that God had a different plan, not just for them. There's two points in here, and I, gotta, I really have to finish. Here's the thing. There's two points in here that the Jews stumbled over. Number one, number one was that the how and the why. The how and the why. The how it was that God was going to save mankind. Through God becoming a man, dying on a cross, raising again three days later, that's not what we consider to be our Messiah. We don't like it that way. Well, who are you, old man, to question God on how he does things? We fall into that category, don't we? When God doesn't do things the way that we think he ought to do them, we kind of get a little angry at God. Well, God, I mean, this is what I think should be the thing you should do. Aren't you happy that God doesn't take your advice all the time? I really am. I've seen some of those girlfriends back in the day when I thought, Lord, she'd be perfect. And now I go, thank you, Lord. You gave me a fox and one that can put up with me. That's awesome. My wife is the most patient woman with me for the most part. I, I stress her. I, I challenge it. Here's the thing. She loves me. I look at some of those others and I go, wow, thank, Lord. thank you, Lord, for not answering my prayer. I'm glad that you didn't listen to me. Well, here's the thing. God doesn't counsel with us in order to know what to do. He didn't do it to create the heavens and the earth. He's not going to do it now. And so here's the thing. The Jews, as long as things were going good and God was on their side or God was, they were their, God was hand, you know, their hand-picked people and all that kind of stuff, here's the thing. As long as everything is for us, everything's good. But the moment that you do something and, and, and as long as you bring in a Messiah that's going to have the six shooters on him and he's going to do it his way and he's going to blow everybody else out of the water, then 
We're going to follow him. But you know what? This weak guy that comes in and ends up, he does some things that fascinate us. But here's the thing. God would never allow us to string him up on a cross and die. Never. And so therefore, that's not God. And they mock him. Because God didn't do it their way. That's the first stumbling block that they had with with Jesus. God wouldn't do it this way. Because we wouldn't do it this way. And we we fall into that category in many aspects of our life. But secondly, the other part is, is that that they even allowed, that, that Jesus was even allowing an opportunity for Gentiles to be saved. The moment that Gentiles, and we're going to look into that next week, but the second thing is that Gentiles were, that salvation was now open to the Gentiles. Because Gentiles, to an ultra-Orthodox Jew, especially in that day, they believed that basically Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. We're basically charcoal for hell. That's what we were for. We're God's chosen. You guys are sent to go to hell and to fuel the fires of hell. We need a lot of charcoal in heaven. That's why there's a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews. And, and it's in that that God says, no, no, that's not the case. And what Paul will do in 9, 10, and 11 is he'll say, let's go back and look at Scripture and let's look and see what it says about the coming Messiah so that you can open your eyes to see that he had to come and he had to suffer and he had to die for us. He had to do this. And I know it wasn't the way that you thought it was going to go. And believe me, I was like you. That's where Paul is. That's what Paul, in the first five verses, what we've actually gone through. We haven't even got, I guess we have gone through five verses um, here in nine. But here's the thing. That's what Paul's doing. He's going, I know what you guys are thinking. I know what you feel. And we're going to look at how Paul is going to lay out his credentials. He's going to lay out his, basically his diplomas next week, you know? as he lays out who it is that he is. Here's what I was all the way growing up. Here's my education. Here's what I did. Here were the institutions that I was involved in. Here were the, you know, the, 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 you know, frat houses that I was a part of, you know, here's everything that I was. And then God knocked me off my high horse because I thought I knew what God wanted. But then God so graciously, he came and he, He revealed himself to me. And and all of a sudden, I had to rethink how it is that that I've learned. And being that I was, I excelled above Pharisees. I excelled above my my brothers, beyond them. I I was educated under the greatest Pharisee, Gamaliel. I was... I was a guy that would go out and hunt down these Christians, of which I am one now. And see them dead? I watched Stephen die. I would take them imprisoned. In fact, I was on the way to go and take more of them in prison. I know what you Jews, I know what my brothers feel, and I know what you're thinking, and I know that you don't think that God would do it this way, and that he would never send Jesus. I know that you don't think that the gospel should ever be open to the Gentiles, but I'm telling you, I've been in both camps. And that's the cool thing that we have about Paul. There's a foundation that we're, we're laying here. Paul understands both camps more than we have a record of anybody else having an understanding. He's been in the inner circle of the religious rulers. And he's been in the inner circle of the Christian church. 
And he's trying to reach back to these that had learned like he learned and begin to open their eyes and to see and they're having none of it. And it's because of a stumbling stone, the scandalon, who is Jesus. He was scandalous to them. And he's just thinking, if I could just talk to him, if they could just, if they could just know what I know in my mind, if, they can just, if I can just write it down, maybe they'll read it. That's what chapters 9 and 11, 9 through 11 are all about. That's what Paul is trying to do. He loves not just mankind, but he loves the Jew. He loves his brothers and he wants to see him saved. And, and it's in that that I leave you with this, and that is this. It's the same kind of a love that we, we've got to have for the lost. That's why we prayed what we prayed here today. We've got to cry out for these guys. We've got to cry out for them. You remember me saying that Paul, if you look in Romans chapter, nine verse, or Romans chapter 10, verse 1, what did it say? You remember what it said. This is exactly what it said. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. What was Paul's desire? What was his prayer? That Israel would be saved. What's your heart and your desire? That my friend would be saved, that my family member would be saved, that my husband, my wife, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my best friend, whoever it is, my next door neighbor would be saved. That's my heart. That's my desire. And that is my prayer. And I'm going to storm the gates of heaven until these people are saved. And I'm not going to let up until that happens, until I hear them say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. That needs to be our heart, guys. That has got to be our heart for the rest of our days because God has handpicked you to represent him in these days. Don't think that your life is void. Don't think that your life is, is not usable for the Lord. Well, I'm never going to be as big as Paul. Who cares? If you save one soul, that's awesome. If God uses you to touch one soul, praise the Lord. But touch the one soul. We have got to stand in the gap right now for our, for our, loved, for our loved ones and for the, the unsaved of this world. We've got to look at them through the eyes of eternity. And we cannot back off for the rest of our days because time is short. And I know that's a broken record for me right now, isn't it? I keep saying time is short. You know what? Time is short. Let's be about our Father's business. Let's be about our Father's business. Amen? Father, thank you so much for today and and Lord, for all the things that we've been able to do here today. Coming before you and crying out to you for the lost Thank you, God. We pray that you just continue to answer those prayers. You remember those prayers. That incense of those prayers come up before you day and night. And Lord, though we may not be saying them right now, well, we are right now, but later on today, that aroma continues to, to just hang around you where you just say, yeah, children there in Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship, they, they cried out for their loved ones today. They touched my heart. Yes, I'll minister. Yes, I'll open their eyes. I'll, I'll do things to, to give them an opportunity to come to me one more time because I desire to see them here also. Lord, use our prayers. Use our lives. Use us up, Lord. Every ounce of us, Lord, Help us not to take anything to the grave that is not of you. But Lord, help us to be spent for you in these days that we're living. 
May we do it not for accolades. May we do it not for money. May we do it not for fame or, or, or uh, notoriety. But may we do it for you. May we do it for the lost. May we do it that your kingdom would be filled up with the people that are on this earth right now because they have opened their eyes to you one more time. God, give us revival in this church. God, give us revival in our own hearts. Give us individual revival. Give me revival in my heart, Lord. Give me a passion like I've never had for the lost. Give me a passion in my heart for these people in this room. And Lord, if it can happen in me, maybe it'll happen in someone else and then it might happen in another and then another and another and maybe in no time at all, our whole church is passionate and we don't rest until we see you, God, work in our life on a day-by-day basis. God, make our, our souls cry out for you, Lord, and help these not to just be words. That's what a pastor is supposed to say. No, God, God, these are your words. This is what you want us to do. Help us to walk out of this place knowing that we have a job to do. We're not going to cower back. But we're going to go about it. We're going to recognize that there is a real, real, real spiritual battle going on out there for the lives of people. It's becoming more difficult daily, by the hour, by the minute, by the second to reach people for you because the world is becoming strong. And yet, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can break down those walls. And so, Lord, we pray that you empower us today in our own lives. And as we walk out of this place today, that we would walk out in the full armor of God, ready and willing to use everything at our disposal for you and for your glory. We offer ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.